Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome to Thread, Season 3, Episode 8. Thread is God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life as a person in ministry. It's the place for believers who want to maximize the impact of their lives on others. In Season 3, we're moving through 2 Corinthians. Today's Thread covers Chapter 3, Verse 6 through 18, and the topic Are We Using the Bible to Crush? Or to liberate. This was a unique passage for me. About six weeks ago, we were at the beach as a family, and I was in charge of leading devotions each morning. I was working through 2 Corinthians for the podcast. And when I first ran into these verses, I just brushed past it, and then I made myself stop because it was the next passage, and I didn't want to skip over it, you know, like that kid that dumps out all the cereal just to get to the prize in the bottom of the box. So I slowed down. And I looked at these verses and I, you know, I just went slow through it. And then, wow, I was so impacted by the message inside. I want to share it with you today. It's about, this is so wild. It's about the two totally opposite ways that the Bible gets used in ministry. And it's about two opposite goals that are taken by people who minister God's word to others. Now, one of these paths unlocks people. I mean, when the word of God goes into them, it, it, it has so much hope and it breaks loose shackles because Jesus said, when you know truth, the truth will set you free. And it's, you know, it's people that don't know the truth and it goes in and their minds receive it and their hearts grab it by faith and they are transformed by God's word. But then there's another path, and it's hard to even conceive of this. But in this case, the Word of God is used, and it actually wounds people. And it brings them into bondage, and it causes their own conscience to go hyper and to attack them relentlessly. And then it leaves them with a closed mind for the rest of their lives. They both use the Bible. They both use God's word. They're both ministering to people. But one of them is closing people down and crushing them with the Bible. And the other one is liberating them and opening their mind. And I read this passage and I thought about it. And I just thought, oh God, this is so horrible. But I know it's true. You see, just because you believe the truth of the Bible and just because you might have your doctrine straight, doesn't mean you're going to minister it to other people in a way that benefits them. I mean, we may be wounding people through our ministry in a sincere effort to do our job as ministers of God. So please listen carefully today, the word of God and to the signs of a ministry that wounds people and make sure that yours doesn't intentionally bruise other people. All right, so this is a lesson Uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm in Thailand today, and one of the rules about the podcast is I just have to let it roll. So it's a Buddhist holiday, and you're going to hear noise outside from time to time and loudspeakers, and the birds are beautifully serenading us today. But uh, you can just put yourself in my mind. I'm right outside of our house is not too far from a temple on a hill, and uh, you know I'm surrounded by people who need to hear the Word of God, but they need to hear it in a life-giving way. Okay, so this is a lesson about contrasts. The context of this passage is we're talking about the intentional effect of one life 
on another person because that's a core activity of this thing called the ministry, you know, to intentionally affect the life of another person with your life. That's actually the context of this whole book. Well, now we want to contrast these two ways of doing ministry, two different systems of how you use God's word toward other people. Now, on the left side, the focus is on being correct, doctrinally correct, behaviorally correct. And this side is represented by the Old Testament, and the teaching is focused on delivering God's code of righteousness. And the purpose of this kind of ministry is to show the listener any areas where they may be guilty before God. You know, it, it is a ministry, and it's a ministry to show us what's wrong with us so we can fix it. And this was the kind of preaching that I heard in my childhood. Now, I don't have any sad stories about church abuse. My pastors loved me, and I grew up in pretty much small churches of 100 to 250, and I had good people around me, and they loved me, and my pastors did too, and we earnestly sought the Lord. However, the job of the minister was understood to be that he was to look into God's Word and he was to spot anything that we might have been doing that we weren't thinking was wrong and to help us because I come out of a Pentecostal church that is from the holiness tradition and so we really want to live a sinless life and so they would search for things that you might not have thought of that are wrong and their job was to show you these things and condemn you of them and in the end of every service three times a week was an altar call and we would come up and say sorry to God and get on our knees and cleanse ourselves and ask him to make us stronger, make us better, and we'd get back up. But the problem with this is a number of things. One is you're living your whole life as a negative, and your whole, you know, your goal of the church service is to get to a zero point. You never move to the positives. But maybe a bigger problem is that it's, although it's well-meaning, it cripples people spiritually. And here's why. Faith is the essential ingredient in our relationship with God. And faith is positive. Faith believes God's word to us. It believes that that word is true. It believes that we can grow into the very image of Christ. It believes that God can use us, even us, in his work on earth. Faith expects God to move on earth and to move through our hand, our lips. But this kind of teaching kills faith. It causes us to doubt ourselves and see ourselves perpetually as defective and dirty and guilty. And our own minds, when we're well trained by this, will learn to condemn us forever. It is death-giving, but doctrinally correct. It uses the true Bible with proper respect for the text and a serious effort to read you know, that text properly in context, and yet it kills. Paul calls it the ministry of death. And later he calls it the ministry of condemnation. Now, the Old Testament didn't have jails. The Old Testament law did not provide for very many forms of punishment. It mostly had death penalties. Kill another person, death penalty. Curse your parents, death penalty. Touch holy things, death penalty. Adultery, death penalty. 
the law condemns human evil and it calls it to be punished. It calls it for what it is and it says it needs to be punished and it draws a thick red line between what is right and what is wrong because we're really bad at defining what is acceptable behavior because as humans we're all the center of our own little world and we see ourselves as pretty good people. Um, we need to thank God for the ministry of the law. The law helps us recognize what is universally right and universally wrong. But if that's all you have, then it's just a clear reading of our death sentence because we're all guilty before God. We're all worthy of death. And so, yes, this teaching is step one in understanding why Jesus came, why he died for us. But thank God. It isn't the end of the word of the Lord to the human race. Now, this ministry of death came to the earth when God revealed his standard to us. And he did that on Mount Sinai when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And when that happened, his holiness touched this cursed earth and the mountain burst into flames. And God told Moses, get the people away from here. If they touch this mountain, they're going to die. You know, the presence of God. It was glorious when it came down. But as Paul's going to point out later, that glory faded from the minute that it was revealed because it wasn't intended to be the thing. It just pointed to the thing that was to come. So on the left hand here, we've got this ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation where you use the Bible, you use God's word, you use God's law, and you show people what is wrong with their life and that they are guilty and need to come clean. But on the other hand, there's an entirely different kind of ministry. Same Bible. Paul calls it the ministry of the spirit. The word spirit, uh, pneuma in the Greek is ruach in, in the Hebrew, and it means... The breath, the breathing of God, the life spirit that gives God his own life. Here's the idea. Jesus fulfilled his mission and he bridged heaven and earth. That was his mission. And then he released his own spirit, his own Ruach into the world. He saved us as his people. He gave us the power to minister along with him in the world. And now He's going around the world and he's putting through our ministry. He's putting that ruach, that, that life breath inside everyone who comes to him for forgiveness. And he's setting them free from their sins and he's releasing them from the curses that are over them. These curses came because they broke the law. And people are now being adopted into his family and they're being transformed as his spirit, his breath enters into them. And all of this is happening because the word of God is being delivered to people. It's being delivered through the ministry of his new servants, his sons, his brothers, his sisters. It's a ministry of, of giving God's breath to people and allowing that breath to enter other people. Now, notice this kind of ministry is also doctrinally correct. It uses the same Bible. It is fully aware of God's standards of right and wrong. And it is full, it's very clear about the guilt that is on everyone who sins against the Lord. This ministry has the exact same faithfulness to draw a line between evil and good and darkness and light. We don't, you know, you don't get away from that. We don't have the authority 
to drop that. It is the standard of God. But this ministry uh, delivers God's standard, focused in an entirely different way. It's focused on bringing other people out of their bondage, out of their self-hate, out of moral failure, out of mental slavery. And the ministry of the Spirit is based upon the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is the promise of change. It's a ministry of love for people. It's a ministry of hope for their lives, no matter what they've gotten themselves into. It promises them you can change. Not just be forgiven, you can be changed by God. Now, today's hot spot, as far as uh, moral issues go, is, of course, the issue of homosexuality. I think the Bible's fairly clear that God only accepts one kind of sexual activity on the earth, and that is that between a married man and his wife with mutual consent, and after they've made a covenant to stay together for the rest of their lives, no matter what. It's a clear standard. Well, how do we bring that standard into our ministry of God's word? Because, I mean, if, if, if there is one uh, issue that will get you flamed and burned today, this is the one. Well, I made, here's my, here's my perspective on it. I made a determination years ago as a person who ministers God's word that I was never going to speak about any particular sin without imagining that there is a person in this room who has this problem. You know, I grew up with Jimmy Swaggart, like railing on sinners, and everybody's, woo! And I just, as I would watch him do it, you know, he's like an Old Testament Jeremiah kind of prophet. But I remember even as he did it, I thought, man, what if you were sitting in that crowd and you had that exact problem. So I made it in my mind. You know, if, it, if somebody has the biggest, hairiest monster of a sin all over them and they're fighting it and can't get free. And the last place they ever thought they were going to be was church. And somebody out of love got them to come. Man, I don't want to do anything that would hurt them. But I need to talk to them about that thing. And they know that thing is a problem because that's why they're there. So I don't need to dodge it. But I need to do it in a way that opens the door to them and says, and do you want free from this? Because here's the way out. Actually, speaking of homosexuality, we had gay day at our church uh, twice while I was pastor. We were a church that met in a movie theater, and this made it very easy for people to come to church who would not have gone to a building. And we also had the right, as uh, someone who rented out the theater, to put things, uh, put posters up around the mall. And so we had a special church service around this issue, and we invited three people to be the leaders of the church service. And all three were men who had stepped out of the homosexual lifestyle. One of them after a sex change. And so it was, to be honest, when you turn your whole church service over to guys with their perspective, it is not going to be a service like one you've ever been in in your life. So it was, it was poignant. It was hilarious sometimes. It was heartbreaking other times. But it was real. And uh, they entered into the pain of a person 
who is struggling with a sexual addiction that they can't shake off. And they describe that life so perfectly because they had lived it. And they described hope in Christ. And they explained the step that they took to make their first moves. And we opened that day a new ministry to help people who wanted to step out of that lifestyle. And, um, you know, today, many of the men who came forward in that service are faithfully serving the Lord. You know, you can be doctrinally correct and minister God's word out of an abundance of love. People can feel your love. I actually had somebody call me at home at the end of that service. And he, I didn't know him, and I don't know how he got my number, but he said, I just want you to know that I sat there in your service waiting for you to say something against me and say something that would hurt me and would give me the excuse to storm out. And it never came. I just felt your love, and I just felt your acceptance. And um, I feel like this is a place where I'm welcome. And he was welcome. And it wasn't, it wasn't my acceptance. It's the Lord. You know, it was the arms of God stretched out. It, was, it took the Holy Spirit to force him to show up for church that day and to make him sit there feeling like he was so different from everybody in that congregation but to know that he wasn't there because a friend wanted him there. He was there because God wanted him there. And God loved him and God was reaching out to him. And God could set him free from his confusion and his pain. You know, you can either crush a life out of somebody and beat them up with the Bible. Or you can use God's word to set them free. So the goal of your ministry can either be condemnation, Paul says in verse 9. Or righteousness. You can either focus on showing people their guilt and condemning them. Or in leading them to become right. Right with God. Right with themselves. And right with other people. What is really cool about a hope filled ministry. Uh, is in verse 12. Paul says we have such big hope. You know a positive powerful ministry. Changes the lives of of other people. I was listening early in my uh, preaching ministry. I was listening to uh, a sermon tape from somebody else. It was actually David Cooper. I'll give him credit for it. And um, he pastors Mount Perrin in Atlanta. And he got to a part. He was preaching you know, a thing that was going to touch on a sin. And he got to the part. I was about 28 when I heard this. And he got to this part, and I was ready, you know, like, now he's going to let him have it. And he completely flipped. And instead of it being a, a correction, he turned it into an invitation. And I just felt the wave of, of relief. I didn't know there was another way to preach, but it was so positive and so welcoming. And I thought, I am, I feel that. You know, I just felt what that did to me, to, to be all set up to get the hammer, and then instead to just... You know, hear hope. And Paul says, we have big hope. Verse 12. And because we have big hope in the gospel, big hope in God, big hope in the Holy Spirit, we use great boldness of speech. You know, evangelists are very forceful people. They believe what they believe, and they are willing to get out there and stand up and advocate for it. And it's beautiful to be an evangelist who's full of Love. Now, 
as we turn toward the end of this passage, we see Paul's going to talk about the opposite results in the life of a person who's been under a, what I'm going to call a fundamentalist religious approach versus the ministry of the Spirit. You need to be careful who you're listening to, and you need to be careful who you sit under because, you know, years of a certain kind of talk coming at you, it's going to change you. So you need to make sure that you're being changed for the better. Um, I think the greatest loss that you suffer under this ministry of condemnation uh, is not that you feel bad about what you do that's wrong. I mean, we should grieve over our guilt. Uh, knowing our moral bankruptcy and mourning over it, those are the first two Beatitudes. And that kind of godly sorrow, you know, it can help us find a true repentance that will lead us to leave that practice of sin that's sucking the life out of us. I don't think that's the problem. It's not that it makes you feel bad for what you do that's wrong. The great loss in a ministry of condemnation is that it's part of a, a bigger system. It's a, it's a system of religion. And one of the primary goals in religion is to put up um, a buffer, some kind of barrier, to keep us away from direct contact with God. And it's one of the main things that's different between a ministry of Bible literalism and a ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's two totally different things. And to get it, we're going to have to go back to something I passed over it quickly on purpose. And that is two different words that Paul has already touched on. The first one is glory. And the second one is veil, you know, veils that you put to cover up. Uh, like a lampshade. Let's start with glory. Glory is the residue of having a direct encounter with God. You know, in the Old Testament, when God showed up, nobody said, oh, gee, I think God might be here. The, the hair on my arm is standing up. When God showed up, it was a little more dramatic than that. And people were on. And, you know, if you fell on your face before the Lord, and if you humbled yourself, if you were so grateful that God himself appeared to you, it changed you forever. And as that encounter finished, there was a glory from God, like an afterglow, that stayed there. And so Paul tells us in verse 7 of chapter 3 that when Moses got close to God's presence, even just for a little while, it made his face glow. His face was glowing with God's glory. So Moses did a very curious thing. He put a veil over his face to keep the glory of God's real presence from disturbing and frightening other people. And this is problematic already because we have done this ever since. Uh, you know, religion has no real interest in a person-to-person -person encounter with God. It is freaked out over the move of the Holy Spirit in a church service. Uh, even to the point that I have seen in printed material, uh, the gift of tongues, interpretation, and miracles just removed from the Scripture as though it does not exist in a book about the gifts of the Holy Spirit because they are so scared. And all over the world, Bible-correct pastors lead control-based worship services that are so scared with real contact from God. Why? Well, it might disturb and frighten other people. What would the visitors think? You know, so there's this buffer idea. It's like you talk to Moses, Moses will talk to God. You deal with the priest, the priest will talk to God. This 
in, you know, anything to keep us from straight up connecting with God. And then Moses, the scripture says in verse 13, had a second reason for this veil. The first one was so that people wouldn't be disturbed by the glory of the real God, the real glory of God. But the second reason is a little bit dicey. It says Moses kept the veil on his face so the people that he was leading would not be aware that God's presence had faded away. The veil was like the curtain for the Wizard of Oz. It kept them from realizing that mm, God's presence wasn't really there very much anymore. Now, today we use highly produced church services. We've got lights and sounds and big volume and sweaty preachers and soloists singing high notes. But it's all kind of like a magician waving his handkerchief in one hand to redirect your attention while he sets up the trick. With the other hand, these are veils and they're scary stuff to me. After a lifetime of ministry like this, a ministry that is a Bible fundamentalist, but is also a ministry that doesn't really want the inbreaking of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because it, it's funny, those two things go together. And that's what's so weird about that. You would think that if you were totally a Bible, I mean, Thump that Bible, but you would think that if you're going to read your Bible, you're going to read, you know, the parts about the Holy Spirit. You're going to covet the move of the Holy Spirit, but that's not what legalism does, and that's not what fundamentalism does. Fundamentalism, man, I would not have that on my sign. Fundamental, think about it. Fundamentalism, here's the belief in a nutshell. It means that you believe that every good thing is in the past, you believe that God's revelation is all in the past. God's activity was all in the past. Miracles, all in the past. A move of God, Mount Sinai, Holy Spirit breakout, all in the past. Thank you very much. Why don't we need it now? We got the Bible. We just need the Bible. We need to believe the Bible. Yes, believe your Bible. Believe the Holy Spirit part that's in the Bible. But these two things go together. This fundamentalist mindset that says we got to go back and we got to get away from now as though God is not revealing himself every day, is not wanting to speak to you today, is not wanting to use your hands today. Why would God not want to use your hands and your voice? Why would God not want to heal a sick person? Why would God not want to break into somebody's life that's in bondage and set them free with you? Why in the world? What possible good reason? Could there be for that when he desires to seek and save that which is lost? But this religious thing, it sets up veils and it tries to keep us away from God. Verse 15, Paul says, uh, sadly about the Jewish people, even to this day, a veil lies on their heart. You know, the human system of religion was covering the minds of religious people and keeping their minds closed. Listen, to anything they don't already believe. They're so scared of a new belief, a new idea, a fresh new thought. They're scared to death of that. Jesus actually said that the Pharisees could take a sinner, make him a convert, and turn him into twice the son of hell because they didn't ever really change people. They just made them self-righteous. The tragedy of a closed mind. 
and how you can close a mind with Bible verses and preaching. Now, verse 16, 17, and 18, Paul describes the results of the ministry of the Spirit in someone's life. So you can sit under that fundamentalist kind of thinking mind, and it's going to close your mind down, and they're going to pound on the Bible, but they are... They're also pounding the nails in your own spiritual coffin because you are not going to grow. You're not going to break out. They're going to bind you with all these words. But Paul says, let's look at the other way of ministering, ministering by the spirit. Verse 16, he says, the first thing that's going to happen is when you turn to Christ, when you have a personal encounter with Christ, the veil is taken away. All this in-between stuff between you and God all this smoke and mirrors, all of this having to go to, I need to ask my pastor to pray for me. I need to ask my elder to pray for me. I don't understand God's word. It's gone. The Lord will take the veil away. You can come directly into the Holy of Holies yourself. Not just a little veil on Moses' head. We're talking about the veil in the temple. And you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. God wants to talk to you Personally, he wants to walk with you personally. And the ministry of the Spirit leads people not, um, not to the church. It leads them to God. It doesn't lead them to be dependent upon their pastor and leaders. It leads them to become dependent upon the Lord. When anyone comes to Christ, the veil is taken away. Verse 17, and they enter liberty. They're more free every day. They're, they're more loose every day. It says, we're, now the Lord, verse 17, is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It's a sign of God's presence. And then the big goal, verse 18, growing from glory to glory. New Living Translation says, so all of us who have had that veil removed, can now see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. We enter the Lord's presence. We can even live in it. Our mind is now unveiled. There's no barrier between us and the Lord. And we gaze at the Lord's beauty and His glory enters and gets all over us. And it changes us a little at a time until we reflect Him perfectly. And here's a beautiful thing. Others can see this change from the outside. And they will come to think that we're awesome, amazing people, but we're just mirrors. We are reflecting the image of the Lord who is doing this to us and our lives say to them, look at me, but think of him. Look at me and think of him. He's doing all this in me and he can do this in your life too. Let's go backwards as we wrap up. Chapter three, verse five says our sufficiency to minister this way is from God. Verse six who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. We're not ministers of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. My friend, God has made us competent to minister the new covenant to other people. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And there is your vision. 
We do ministry to give life to other people. We found this life and it changed us. And now God has called and authorized and empowered us to give this life away through our ministry to other people. Well, that's all for now. If you're enjoying Thread, please share the podcast with your friends. Just use the buttons in the player on your screen to forward it. And we've got lots of free resources for you. Just check out MediaLightOnline.com. You'll find online courses that we've developed to help you find God's will and grow personally, spiritually, as a leader, and improve your communication skills and ethics. This week, expect God to use you. You're the light of the world, so shine on.